Shabbat Shalom, everyone. As everyone should know, this week, um, Parasha is Shemot. We heard the summary already this morning of this section, first section of the book of Exodus. Of course, as was outlined, this is the part of Exodus, the very beginning, where we read about the persecution of the Israelites in Egypt, the birth of Moses and his flight from Egypt, his subsequent, his subsequent calling by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and then Pharaoh's first response to this call by increasing the burdens on the children of Israel. These are all stories we're very familiar with. We know these events. We know these stories. And I know I've said this before, perhaps from the Bema here, maybe it was at Yeshiva, I don't remember which, probably both, because I, th I think I've said it many times. But when we read these familiar passages and the events that they tell us, we need to work very hard to look at them with a fresh set of eyes. Because we think we know them. And unfortunately, we think we know them, not even so much because of how familiar, familiar we are with the text, but because we've seen this story told many, many times through movies and cartoons and so on that are produced by Hollywood. So we have to go to the scripture. When we read it, we should go to the scripture with a new set of eyes, a fresh set of eyes. Try to put aside all of the assumptions that we have because we've watched the Ten Commandments every Easter weekend for 30 years. Or because we've seen the Prince of Egypt, or there was a more recent one that Christian Bale in it that I forget. But I'd ever, I think it was just called Exodus and then had some subtitle. Um, I've never actually seen that one. But we have these familiar media through which we know this story. And that influences us, and it can cause us to impose an inaccurate depiction of Moses. It gives us an incorrect understanding of who Moses was, who he, and how significant it was that God called him out. And it can blur our vision to see what God truly is doing throughout these passages. And I, and I say this especially in light of today's message that's going to focus on strength and weaknesses. It's going to be important to limit our understanding of Moses to only what we read in Scripture, perhaps a little bit of what we know about Egyptian society from history, and not rely upon what we've seen on screens. If one is to look at Moses in popular culture, how is Moses typically depicted? Well, he's usually seen as a, as a strong man of blessed privilege. He's physically strong. He's typically handsome. He speaks boldly with authority and with bravado. He's like a natural leader. People just flock to him. He's shown typically as being a brilliant man who learns the way of the Egyptians and becomes a master, whether it be of war and leading Pharaoh's armies, or he becomes a master architect and builder of the great uh, monuments and cities that the Egyptians built. To be honest, in many of these de depictions, he's made out to be a sex symbol. 
How often do we see in these stories that it's some, the daughter of, a fair, of Pharaoh or maybe some consort to one of Pharaoh's sons is also attracted to him? And that there's a love triangle between Pharaoh's son and Moses and some beautiful woman. Even think about why is it that they get someone like Charlton Heston back in the day? Or someone today like Christian Bale to play him because they're making Moses out to be this attractive alpha male who everybody's going to love and everybody's attracted to and everybody wants to be like or be around. He's also typically shown as one who's adopted the ways of the Egyptians entirely. To the point, and sometimes when he's depicted, he doesn't even know his Hebrew heritage. And even more so, he is so successful as an Egyptian in these depictions that oftentimes the Pharaoh all of a sudden starts favoring him over his own birth son. This is the image of Moses that Hollywood gives us. At least the image of Moses before his encounter with God at the burning bush. But that's not the image the Bible provides for us. If you actually read the scriptures and just go by those words... That's not Moses that we see in those, in those depictions. And I want to be a little fair to Hollywood. They aren't the ones who started this, of elevating Moses into this perfect man. The rabbis and even ancient Jewish historians did this. They added to the story to build up Moses to make him more than he really was. In fact, some of the additional stories about Moses that we see in the movies like the Ten Commandments they, that, but that aren't in the scripture, they actually come from the Targums and the Talmud or the writings of Josephus, the director um, Cecil B. DeMille who made the Ten Commandments. He, admit, he went and studied all of those things. He, and, he went and studied all of the Jewish writings looking for additional stories about Moses that could inspire him in the telling of this movie he was making. However, when we actually turn to scripture, like I said, we see a very different Moses. First, I'm going to go through a couple things that are, is very different. But first, it's very unlikely that Moses didn't know he was a Hebrew. Scripture never says he didn't know. And I, reading the scripture and just trying to think about it reasonably... I am very confident that he always knew that he was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he belonged to the people that were oppressed by Pharaoh. Now, why do I say this? Well, first of all, Scripture tells us what? Well, Scripture tells us that he, in his first early years, was actually raised by his mother. He wasn't raised by the Egyptians. Jochebed raised him at the very least to the age of three or five, but perhaps even longer. And we know this because Exodus 2, 7 through 10 tells us. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. So we see that Moses was raised by his own mother in a Hebrew house until at least the age range of three to five. And like I said, it could even be longer. 
Now why do I say though probably between the ages of three and five? I say it because the purpose of him going back to his mother, as we just read, was so that he could be nursed by her. And in ancient societies, we know a child was typically nursed to around between the ages of three and five. They were nursed much longer than we nurse children today, or we typically nurse children today. And again, we don't know, perhaps it went even longer. I'm sure Yochebed was reluctant, and as soon as he stopped um, he stopped nursing from her, he, that I'm sure she just didn't automatically tell Pharaoh's daughter and send him back. She probably waited until, for a while and as long as possible. So we know he was in the house. Now, you could make an argument, well, maybe it was at the age of three, he was weaned from his mother, and he went back to Pharaoh's house. And yeah, three, you, how many people here have memories other than maybe a, an image or something from the time they were three? So yes, it would be easy, it would be easy to forget those first several years of your life and be raised in an Egyptian house. But there's another problem, why Moses would have always known he was a Hebrew. And that is because he would have likely held the sign of Abraham, meaning he was circumcised. Now here again, Scripture never speaks of Moses' circumcision. I will acknowledge that. But there's no reason to assume that it wasn't done, that they didn't follow the commandments of God and that he wasn't circumcised on the eighth day. Because we know he was three months before he was put in the river, so he certainly was there in his household. So he had that mark of circumcision. Furthermore, I would assert that he was circumcised because what we read in Exodus 2, 5 through 6. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. How in the world did she know that this three-month-old baby was a Hebrew? I know in the movies they'll often depict, well, maybe there was a, a shawl that looked like a tallit or something that was wrapped around Moses and that it was from that that she picked up on it. The tallit didn't exist back then, guys. That, that's a fiction. That's taking something from modern days and trying to put it back into the story. And again, Scripture doesn't say how she knew, but what would be the most likely reason she would have known immediately was a Hebrew boy? The circumcision. He was circumcised. The Egyptians didn't circumcise their children. So it makes sense that that's probably what she saw that, helped, that immediately allowed her to recognize it as being one of the Hebrew children. And again, think about what was part of the purpose of taking that sign of Avram, of having the male circumcised. It was because you were taking a mark, a sign upon you that you are a, 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 a descendant of Avram. You are separate from the other nations. You belong in covenant with God. The whole purpose was to distinguish them from everybody else. So Moses had to have known he was always a Hebrew. And I'll even go further and, and I'll say when you reread scripture, what scripture says right after Moses was taken back to Pharaoh's daughter, what's the next part of Moses' life that we hear about? Well, Exodus 2, 11 through 12 reads. Now when it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. When he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
Now before we look at these two specific verses, let us note the absence of any record of what occurred between Moses being taken back to Pharaoh's daughter and being named Moses and then the killing of the Egyptian. The Bible says nothing about those 35 years or so that exist um, in Moses' life. There's no discussion about him being educated as an Egyptian, about him becoming a great leader among them, of a rise in the esteem of the Pharaoh, a rivalry with the son of Pharaoh, a love triangle between him and Egyptian woman and the son of Pharaoh. None of that that we know from the movies is here. Now, of course, I can't definitively state that none of that ever occurred, but even if it did, we see that Moses did not consider it important when he wrote these verses about himself. Remember, Moses is writing this story about himself because he penned Exodus. If any of that, even, even just a sliver of what we know from the movies and so on occurred, Moses didn't consider any of it important. And furthermore, we need to keep in mind that a pharaoh would commonly have multiple wives. I mean, that would be the norm. Five, ten, maybe more wives. And because of that, a pharaoh would have 40 to 60 children, maybe up to 100 or more children. Therefore, even though Moses was brought into the house of a daughter of pharaoh, there's, way, there's no way of knowing even how close she actually would have been to the pharaoh. And there were levels, I actually went and looked this up last night um, in history to see what did the Pharaoh's family look like. Well, the Pharaoh would have one wife who was called a great wife, and she was the most esteemed wife of Pharaoh, and she was the one that was hopefully going to provide him the direct heir who would become the next Pharaoh in line. And certainly any children, any other sons and daughters she provided were elevated and closer to Pharaoh. But then the, the wives that Pharaoh, the secondary wives that Pharaoh essentially had, their children, yeah, they were blessed. They were in the house of Pharaoh. They had the wealth and the privilege that came with that. But that doesn't mean Pharaoh even had a relationship with them. They may have lived in a different city in his kingdom, and he never even saw that. And I would argue, um, if, and I never realized this until this past year when we were doing Exodus in Yeshiva, and, if suddenly, and I started, we were really looking at the details, it dawned on me, Pharaoh's daughter, when she finds Moses, would not have been in the palace of where Pharaoh lived, the primary residence of Pharaoh. And the reason being is, when you look at a map of Egypt, and you look where Goshen is compared to where Thebes, which was the capital of Egypt at that time where the Pharaoh resided, Goshen is well to the north. And if Moses' mother puts him in the basket in the Nile, the Nile flows north. So he would have even, the basket would have floated even farther away from the center of power. So it's likely this was some palace that, yes, Pharaoh owned, where maybe one of his secondary wives, maybe he had some sons and daughters living there, but it, at best it may have been like a vacation spot for him to go to, a summer home um, closer to the Mediterranean Sea that he may have visited at times. This wasn't the seat of, of, of where the actual Pharaoh rested, where Moses was found. And as an aside, um, also, when we read the story of Moses, it really doesn't get to understanding who Moses is, but one of the things we also need to understand 
is that none of the pharaohs are ever mentioned by name in the book of Exodus. It's just pharaoh. It doesn't tell us which of the pharaohs there it was. And over the life of Moses, of, of Moses, there was at least three of them. There had to be. The one when he was born, 40 years later, the one who, um, who sought to kill Moses after he murdered an Egyptian, and then 40 years after that, one who um, is the, of, of the plagues and of the actual exodus. There may have been multiple pharaohs even between those three. So in Moses' lifespan, if you, when you look at the records of the pharaohs, it's very easy that there could have been ten pharaohs that existed over the, or over the lifespan of Moses, if not more. What we can say, though, definitively, again, just want to try to deconstruct the movies and get rid of our assumptions, the pharaoh that Moses dealt with at, with the exodus and the plagues and everything, that's not Ramses. And anyone who has been in yeshiva or has gone to the um, Patterns of Evidence movies, you, we've clearly seen that. It's impossible that it would have been Ramses to be the pharaoh. Ramses comes at least 200 years after Moses in the exodus. But returning now to this passage about Moses killing the Egyptian, if you read it, and we take away all these assumptions and all these backstories that have been added to it, that, we, that these Hollywood images that are on us, I think it actually reads as though he knew he was a Hebrew. It says he went out to his brethren. And he saw an Egyptian beating one of his brethren. And then he looks around, you know, he wants to make sure he's safe, that he's not going to, no one's watching, he's not going to get in trouble. And then he goes and he kills the Egyptian. And to me, this all reads as though he was weighing his options on what he should do. And that finally he did act in defense of this man who was receiving the beating, but the reason he acted was because it was a Hebrew. It was his brother, and he knew this was one of his people that was receiving it. It simply wasn't because Moses was instinctually a just man who couldn't bear to see one human beating another. He was defending his brethren, I think. Now, of course, we know from Scripture when word reaches Pharaoh that Moses had killed an Egyptian, Moses has to flee. Exodus 2, 15 tells us. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, I, I will acknowledge here, even like I just said, there's no reason to believe or to assume Moses had any type of relationship to the Pharaoh at this point in his life or at least any close relationship, or that he was held in high esteem by the Pharaoh. But, I think this verse does show Pharaoh at least knew who Moses was, though. He was aware of Moses. Because, that, but my guess is that he was aware this is an adopted member of my household, that one of my daughters took this Hebrew in and has been raising him, so I know him. But there's no indication of Moses having favor with this Pharaoh when we read the text, or being held in high esteem by him. Instead, it simply says Moses fled to Midian. He wasn't banished, as the Ten Commandments makes it look like. His name wasn't stricken off all the monuments and all, within all the writings of the kingdom. He simply had to flee because Pharaoh sought to kill him. Now once we jump ahead to Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush, we also see that he was not the gifted speaker that we always see in the movies. He was not someone who could rally people to his side or speak boldly to opposing positions of power. That is the Moses of Heston and of Baal. 
Christian Baal, not the God Baal. <laughs> the, he's not the dynamic leader that draws all people to himself through his inspiring speech or his impressive presence. Instead, we see that Moses either had a speech impediment or he was such a poor speaker or someone so unconfident about his ability, he trembled at the thought of going before the people or going before the Pharaoh to have to be the mouthpiece of God. Look at Moses' response to God that he says over and over when he's called to do these great things. Exodus 3.11, Exodus 4.1, and 4.10-13 tells us. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O my Lord, please send me by the hand of whomever else you may send. These are not the utterances of a bold, confident man who can speak words of either inspiration or defiance. They are not that of a leader who courageously accepts this calling that's being placed upon him. Instead, they show fear, they show doubt, they show hesitation. These are the words of someone who actually seems to want to remain hidden. He doesn't want to be put in front of the people. He doesn't want to be put in front of the Pharaoh. This is not the Moses of the Ten Commandments movie or other Hollywood productions. But interestingly, it is actually at this moment where, Moses, where we see Moses admitting, confessing his weaknesses, and he's pleased to God, please select someone else. This is where we see God endowing Moses with a power that will raise him up to great heights among the people and especially to Pharaoh. It's where Moses is seen as his weakness that God will now move to make him appear strongest. And it isn't necessarily obvious at first that God's solutions to Moses' doubts and reluctance is the very thing that's going to raise Moses up and make him appear to be a strong leader. The immediate response by God is to give Aaron Moses' brother as an aide. Oh, Moses, okay, I'm going to accept you're not a good speaker, you're not confident, so I'll give you someone to help you. We read that today, that seems like, okay, God is acknowledging Moses' weakness, and okay, I'll give you someone to help you, because you're too weak. But God is actually doing something different, in that he's, he's going to elevate Moses up. Exodus 4, 14 through 16 says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. Well, what's that last thing? You will be to him, to Aaron, as God. Now, I'm not sure that's the best translation. I think it should probably say, as a God. 
But maybe God, because God is obviously speaking through Moses, who's then speaking through Aaron. By making Aaron the spokesman of Moses, he's not giving Moses a crutch for him to walk on, but rather he's elevating Moses to appear as a God, as someone, of, as a being of power and authority. Again, in our society, we would never think this way. If someone was too, was too weak or too cowardly to speak for themselves and instead they had to rely on surrogates, we would interpret that as, we, well, we would dismiss them as a leader. We wouldn't, we'd say, this isn't someone that could lead us. They are timid. They're full of doubt. They're incapable of taking the initiative to getting in front of the crowd and actually leading them. But to think this way is not to understand the ancient world, where society was stratified into very different classes, and not really even just classes, but into different categories that held that some individuals by, by right of birth were inherently unequal to everyone else. There were people because of their birth that were raised up, they were seen as being greater not just in talent and ability, but actually just in terms of value. Therefore, in the stratified society, it was beneath a person of someone of high station to actually have to speak directly to those who were considered of a lower station. And therefore, you have people go and speak for you. That's a way of elevating yourself. Keep yourself separate and apart from those who you see beneath them. Thus, when they see someone coming forward who has a spokesman, someone speaking for them, that actually elevates the person who's not speaking. Because again, it's like, oh, well, they're of some higher quality. They're of some higher person that they need to have this, media, uh, this mediator between us. Power back in those societies was demonstrated via silence to others. Thus, by Moses being weak in speech and needing his brother's aid, not wanting to be the, the, the mouthpiece of God, not wanting to have to speak to the, to the children of Israel and to Pharaoh, by, having, by then God giving him Moses, now Moses appears to be elevated. He now appears to be stronger than who he actually is. Thus Moses appears as a god because Aaron now is going to appear as his prophet. And we see that this is actually what occurs when Moses goes before Pharaoh. Exodus 6, 28 through 7, 2 says... And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. When Moses was weak, he was made strong. God used Moses' weakness and his lack of confidence to make him appear as though he was an equal to Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh would have had servants who would have spoken in official matters for him. Pharaoh wouldn't have gone out and addressed a crowd. Pharaoh would have sent someone out to address the crowd, speaking on behalf of him. Moses now appears before him with this servant. It's his brother, but it, looks, it would appear as his servant, as his prophet who speaks for him. Strength then is seen in Moses, not because he actually possesses it, but because God had placed it upon him. So if that's the picture that the, that the Bible gives us, why do we get this Hollywood version of Moses? 
But why even did the ancient rabbis or historians like Josephus find it necessary to add stories to Moses' life that make him appear more heroic and accomplished than he likely was? It's because people want to see qualities that they associate with strength and power in their leaders and their heroes. They want to see characteristics that they think demonstrate a person's strength, their tenacity, their courage, their intelligence, their boldness. This is what we want to see in our leaders. They want to see characteristics that are going to, that are going to attract them and attract others to that person. After all, how interesting would a movie be if Moses came across as merely an um an average individual of divine circumstance who really didn't seem to be a person that was driving his own destiny. What if you had the movie that showed Moses, he's just a random average man who fell by no act of his own into a position of, of privilege in Egypt. He's quiet, he do, probably doesn't speak up often either because he's embarrassed because he does have a speech impediment or again he just lacks confidence in public speaking. He's seen as a person always reacting to the circumstances around him rather than proactively forging his own course. This is the picture I see of Moses in the parasha this week. And actually, I would love to see a film that depicts Moses as such. Because rather than glorifying a man who was chosen by God to be his prophet, such a film would instead place the glory on God by showing that he accomplished for the children of Israel, what he accomplished for the children of Israel was through some just ordinary man that God, by his divine knowledge and grace, decided to select. Someone he selected even before Moses, before he, Moses was born. But my guess is that such a film would not likely have much financial success, and that's why it doesn't get made. Because the greater public is not, that's not what they're looking for. They don't want stories that glorify God. They want a hero instead that they can look up to or maybe they could even aspire to. Of course, this is a reflection, looking at Moses and seeing him more as a weaker man who God puts into a position of strength and power so that God's strength and power can be seen. This is a reflection of what the Bible says throughout its pages regarding what humans look for in their leaders versus what God looks for in his servants that will attend his flock. In the days of Samuel, when the people of Israel demanded a king to rule over them, they sought after someone who would look just like the leaders of the nations that surrounded them and that were endlessly attacking them generation after generation. They wanted an authority over them who would appear strong, but also just. They did look for someone who was just, but they primarily wanted someone who was strong, someone they felt who could protect them from the surrounding nations. In 1 Samuel 8, 19-20, we see... Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The desire of the Israelites here were to have an authority over them that looked like all the other nations. A person who would judge and govern over them, keep their society ordered and, and fair and running but also one who would go out and fight their battles for them. They were looking, therefore, for a strong individual, one who could preserve and protect and secure the peace of the nation, but more importantly, one who could either lead the armies of Israel into battle when they were attacked, 
or even serve as Israel's champion against the champion of other nations. A strong, powerful man who could go out and single-handedly in battle take on the other nations. So what they're looking for is someone who could demonstrate power and might. And when God chose their first king, he gave them essentially what they wanted. They get, he gave them a person who appeared to be one who could successfully go out and fight for them. Listen to how Saul is described in 1 Samuel 9, 1 through 2, and 10, 23 through 24. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, the son of Zor, the son of Bechoreth, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and a handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he, than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So they ran and brought him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. So we see first, Saul comes from a fairly from a family headed by a patriarch, Kish, who's described as being a mighty, mighty man of great wealth. Now, in other verses, it does emphasize how, you know, they do, this is a family that comes from the smallest tribe, Benjamin, and the smallest clan or family among that tribe. But we see that Saul's direct father was considered a mighty man. He was considered a powerful and, and wealthy man. So we see that there is still a certain pedigree that's associated with Saul. We also see that Saul was considered more handsome than anyone else among the children of Israel. He was an individual of great height. In fact, he was so tall that it's saying the rest of the people, so if he's in a crowd, everyone else is just coming up to his, you know, is just coming up to the shoulders. He's literally, like physically, is seen as a leader just because he's a whole head taller than everybody else. But of course, in looking at all of this, we're only looking at outward traits. But that's what the Israelites were doing when they asked for a king. That's what they wanted. And you could see then why Saul looked like the ideal man for the Israelites. He had the physical size you would want in a champion and a leader of your army. He had a physical appearance that would draw others to him. And he came from a family of power and wealth, which would be associated with a track record of success. He would be a leader that the nation surrounding Israel would have chosen for themselves. Yet we all know how Saul turns out. He utterly failed to judge over Israel because he neglected God's commandments and he proved to be a coward on the battlefield when he was confronted, confronted by an even larger champion from another nation, that being Goliath. Go and read the story of Goliath. I'm not, we're not, I don't have time to go through it all. But if you read, starting back here, even to the, why the Israelites asked for a king, how Saul was chosen, when you get to the story of Goliath, you see the utter failure of what the Israelites wanted, because now when Saul is, because the, the assumption is Saul should have been the one that went out and fought Goliath. But now Saul is confronted with an even larger and more powerful man than he, and he hides back in the camp, in the tents. The problem here was that the king the people wanted was someone who appeared strong and mighty before them, someone who could fight for them and win. But these were not the qualities God had said would be important in the king. Going back to the Torah, God had already given commandments of what the future king should be like. 
And God said it should be an individual who studies the word, his word, who studies the Torah, the commandments, and who does not lift himself above his brethren. He says nothing about the king being an individual who can win wars or who can be seen as a strong protector over Israel. And of course the reality is that God didn't need these qualities in a king, in an earthly king, because he was the one that would determine whether Israel would win their wars or not. He was the one that would provide protection over them. He was the one that decided if Israel would be vulnerable to their enemies or not. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20 describes the future king as follows. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to be careful to observe all the words of this law and the statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Thus, when we then see God select Saul's successor to the throne of Israel, we see him anoint David, a man not chosen for his physical appearance, but for the nature of his heart. It would be a heart that would reflect more, certainly not perfectly, but it would be more in line of what God said he wanted in his kings. A man who studies Torah and commits himself to it, and a man who does not elevate himself above his brethren. As, as well known in the anointing of David, God even had to reveal to Samuel that outward appearances is not what matters. But the nature of one's heart is what he looks for in his leaders. 1 Samuel 16, 6-7 states, So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For, the, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now when we read that passage, so we, and everybody knows this passage, that God looks in the heart. That's what God was weighing when he was looking to anoint David. He was looking and he was at David's heart and what was the quality of it. But I think it's important to recognize that when it says God looks at his heart, and that's why he accepts, accepts, that, accepts him, it's not that God saw a righteous or perfect heart in David. Oftentimes I think we can read this and think, oh, well, David was a good man. David was a righteous man, and that's why God wanted him. But anyone who has read all of David's story knows that he was very prone to fall out of righteousness. And anyone who's read the Psalms knows how much David himself, looking in and reflecting on his own heart, considered himself to be a wicked man. Someone who needed his heart to actually be cleansed by God. Go and read Psalm 51 for your best example of that. Likewise, anyone who knows the stories of Samuel knows how David often failed to live up to the standards that God set before him as the king of Israel. But yet God saw something in David's heart that made it clear he was the right individual to lead Israel. And what was that quality? Well, it was the quality in David's heart to trust God no matter the circumstances. 
as, da as the story of David and Goliath demonstrates. But it's actually seen throughout all of his life and all of those stories. David's strength, because David did become a very strong and mighty man. And all of his successes, he unites the kingdom, he defeats the enemies. You never really hear about the Philistines. They're after the, the, the major enemy of Israel at that time, the Philistines, they're a minor thought after David when you read scripture, as well as most of the other nations are as well that immediately surround Israel. He, did, he was a strong man. He was successful. But all that comes because he was able to trust God in his heart to deliver him of all circumstances. David was a great warrior because his trust in God. He was a great king because of his trust in God. It was not a result of his natural talents or his physical size or his strength. After all, if David relied merely on his talents and strength when he went up against Goliath, we would never, heard, we would never have likely heard of this foolish shepherd boy, David, who tried to stand against the giant champion of the Philistines. It was only because he trusted in God that God elevates him at that point into the position of power that we always associate with David. Using the weak rather than the strong, anointing servants who possess meekness and demonstrate a dependence upon God rather than their own abilities, and raising up ordinary men to achieve miraculous victories for the people of God, this is the pattern we see repeated throughout the Bible. God chooses those from whom the world would not expect greatness to achieve his ends. Why does he do this? Is it simply that God enjoys subverting our expectations? I wouldn't put it that way, but rather I'd reverse that and say the problem is that our expectations too often do not conform to what God's will is. We expect success and leadership to come from those who can exert their will over others whether it be through exercising their might and power, or it be through intelligence and charming speech. We expect it because it's how we typically see people rise up, whether it be the corporate world, the political world, or any type of organizational ladder. This is how we see people typically rise. And therefore, we're tempted to look at the nations around us and see how leadership is expressed, and look for the, look for the common traits that are among those leaders. And then when we want a leader for, of God, that God has put before us and over us, we want to see those same things. But this is not how God operates. In both of his letters to the Corinthians, Paul takes up the issue of God using the weak to confound the strong. He explains why God does this in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-31. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame, put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Messiah Yeshua, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written, he who glorifies, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God chooses what the world considers to be foolish, to be weak, and to be base to accomplish his will. Paul says he does this so that his glory, God's glory, will remain solely with him. And it will not be shared with and it will not be stolen by the flesh. Meaning it won't be 
shared or stolen from the men and the people that God raises up to be his leaders. If we see a leader accumulate power and accomplish great acts because he has a strong will that fights for what he wants, or he possesses eloquent speak, speech and a charisma that influences others, or he has a talent for bringing people together to get things done, then the glory belongs to the individual. However, if an individual is known to not be outstanding in any of these abilities or characteristics, but they are still able to accomplish great things, especially if those great things are not for themselves but for others, then we are more likely to see the power behind the person that drove those events. We're more likely to see how God has moved in history out of his love for his people. Now, of course, the reality is that God is moving both the strong and the weak for his greater purpose. God hardened Moses' heart, or he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was a strong man. God is actually behind that strong man as well. God used the king of Babylon as his hammer, as a punishment of an unfaithful Judah. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was a very strong, powerful man. But God was behind that power. Even Yeshua had to declare, tell Pilate, the only power you have over me is that which was given to you from above. Pilate as a governor of Rome would have been seen as a powerful person, but God was behind it. But behind those other individuals, behind a Pharaoh or a Nebuchadnezzar or a Pilate, you don't, it's harder to see God unless you are able to see spiritually and you have the lenses that scripture gives you, you, you miss that power of God behind even them. It's more likely, it's more easy to discern the will of God when he uses the weak the foolish and the base, because you sit there like, well, how did this guy accomplish that feat? You know, how was, did, did that event turn out in the favor of God's people when you had that, someone who, you know, I knew grew up who was kind of a nerd and got pushed around, was a doofus or whatever. Um, okay, there, there's got to be a power behind him. You're more likely to see God. And this is why I dislike the movies that make Moses or David or any of the men of the Bible into great men by their own accord. To make Moses out to be a great leader because of his Egyptian education or his personal traits, or to make David out to be God's anointed because he had a righteous heart. First, these, aren't, these are not accurate depictions of the men based on scripture. But second and more importantly, such depictions obscure, obscure what God accomplished through each of these individuals. When Paul himself had to defend his own authority as an apostle in his second letter to the assembly at Corinth, he brought up the issue of strength and weakness again, most likely because he was being attacked by opponents for be being considered weak in, in character or in speech. You've got to read the entire book, um, book, um, letter of 2 Corinthians to really draw that out, but Paul's addressing this, this issue throughout that letter, that there's somebody or some group in Corinth that is attacking him, saying... And it seems like they're attacking, like, well, look how horrible, you know, he, he speaks, he writes, when he writes to you, when he's far off, he writes boldly and eloquently, but when he's before us, look at what a schmuck he is. He, he can't speak well, or he, he appears weak-minded, or, you know, he doesn't have much strength to him. So this is what Paul is having to defend himself against. Paul defends how his apostolic authority, but in contrast to his apparent weakness, can coexist in the service of God. And actually, the two, because they do coexist, actually is all the greater. 
2 Corinthians 12, 7-10 states, And least I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of the Messiah may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for the Messiah's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what Paul is saying here is that in order for himself to be kept humble, because Paul needed to be kept humble, he's admitting here, I need to be kept humble, that because I receive these revelations from God, because these understandings that are revealed to me that haven't been revealed to others, that I don't become too puffed up. I don't become too prideful and, and start to think, well, it is because of me. I figure these things out because I'm smarter than the rest. Or God saw the intelligence I possess and therefore God revealed because I could handle it more than someone else. It'd be very easy for Paul to slip into that because the reality is Paul was a brilliant man. When we read Paul's history, we know that he was taught by the Sanhedrin. He probably would have become the leader of the Sanhedrin eventually. He would have been the, one of the great rabbis of the Jewish people today um, if he had not had his um, experience with Yeshua on the road to Damascus. But not only was he great in the, in the esteem of the Jewish rabbis and leaders, but he also knew the world, the Greek philosophy. He was well versed in that. His writings indicate that he was, this was an extremely intelligent man. It would be very easy for him to think, it's because of me, that's why I have these, revel God gives me these revelations. So he says, in order to keep me humbled, in order to keep me to, to, from stumbling down that path, a thorn was put in my side. God put that thorn in his flesh. I know that it says they're a messenger of Satan to buffet me. But you got to remember, Satan can only move where God allows Satan to move. So God really put that flesh, in, that, that thorn in his flesh. Quick aside, I don't, you know, it's always been debated, well, what is the thorn? What, what do we think it was? Was it some type of physical malady? Was it the opposition? The, the, is he actually making a reference to the, his opponents there in Corinth? Um, was it something spiritual? We don't know. I do think I figured it out, though, from my own personal experiences. And I think the thorn in the side was a toy poodle. Because I know the one that's lived in my house for the last seven years has been a thorn in my side. So that's my guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Regardless, though, of what the thorn was in Paul's side, this was a weakness given to him by God, which is why God would not answer his prayer to have it removed. You know, Paul says, I prayed three times, and God would not remove it. But Paul then recognized what God was doing and why God allowed that thorn to be there. Paul shares that Yeshua's grace, meaning Yeshua's favor, was all that he needed. This was a reminder. You don't need your intelligence. You don't need your um, education pedigree. You don't need all those titles we see Paul um, say that he has the right to brag about as the Pharisee of the Pharisees in, in other places. All you need is Yeshua's favor, his grace. And that where then, 
Because of that thorn where Paul was his weakest, that is where Yeshua's power is demonstrated most completely. Thus Paul says he boasts of his weaknesses and he takes pleasure in them because that is where Messiah's power is most clearly revealed through him. Where he is weak, then he is strong. You, because Yeshua is best represented and seen in those places. Now even stepping beyond Paul and then Moses and David, this ultimate flipping of our expectations the flipping of expectations when we think about his chosen prophets, kings, and apostles. All of that, what I've kind of showed this morning, if you think of other examples in the scriptures, they are merely a shadow of this flipping of expectations of weakened strength that we see at the cross. For it's at the cross, what appears as weakness actually becomes the highest display of strength. What appears as the ultimate defeat is in fact the glorious victory of God. What appears as the extinguishing of hope becomes the spark of our greatest hope. What appears as sin and death is in reality the overthrow of these two great foes and then being placed under the feet of Yeshua. What appears to, as a man who cannot save himself was in fact the means by which salvation was offered to the entire world. In weakness there is strength. When, because God is there and revealed greatest in those weaknesses. So let us conclude with Paul's summaration of what the cross means to the world and to the called out disciples of the Mashiach. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach the Messiah crucified, to the Jews, a stumbling block into the Greeks' foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the Messiah, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Amen. It's our duty to praise the Master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation. For he made us unlike the nations of the lands, and has not placed us like the families of the earth. He has not made our portion like theirs, and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow, and acknowledge our thanks before the King over kings, the Holy One, blessed be He. He stretches out heaven, and establishes earth's foundation. The seat of His glory is in the heavens above, and the presence of His power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there is none other. True is our King, there is nothing beside Him. As it is written in His Torah, and you shall know this day, and take to your heart, that the Lord, He is God, in the heavens above, and on the earth below, there is none other. Amen. Amen, amen. Let us stand together.